All right, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Isaiah. Going back and catching a few of these books that we missed audio recordings or physical notes for. The notes that you have tonight are the same notes that were uh, issued to you when we went through now several, several months ago the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at those same passages. So there, there may be, for those of you with um, the, the best of memory, some redundancy here, but if I didn't remember it, I'm skeptical as to whether or not any of you will either. So uh, we're back to Isaiah tonight after several months, and we want to overview the book as best we can. One of the challenges with an overview series, and you've observed this along the way, I'm sure, is that there's so much to cover. There can be a level of subject, uh, subjectivity to what you choose to cover or highlight in a given book. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah. There's just no way to wring out all of the truth and even all of the significant themes that a book like Isaiah carries. But one of the things that I want to really press on in Isaiah is the key contributions that it makes to New Testament theology. Isaiah is quoted more often in the New Testament, twice as much as any other prophet. In fact, the books that are quoted most often in order are, are Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and then Isaiah. So I mean, we're talking about a prophetic book that gets a lot of publicity in the New Testament. Some have referred, and I think rightly so, to the book of Isaiah as the gospel according to Isaiah. It reads that overtly Christocentric. In other words, you don't have to have a biblical studies degree to see that the text drips of Jesus with every chapter. Some of the most obvious references to a suffering Messiah who would die in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, and being raised again the third day in the Old Testament can be found here in the book of Isaiah. The setting for the book is roughly 700 years before it's called the ministry, a calling that is talked about in Isaiah chapter 6, which is where we'll begin in just a moment. The northern territory, the northern kingdom, had about 20 years left. So in the history of, of Israel, you had the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, and two southern tribes, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel's always bad. They never have a single good king. Of all the kings they have, from the time of the kingdom's division until its fall, it never had a good king. In the south, things were different. They had bad kings, but they also had some good kings periodically, and kings in the lineage of David ruled Judah the two southern tribes. Judah is the largest of the two tribes in the south, and so it bears the name of its greatest tribe. For us southern folks, an easy way to remember that is the north is always bad and the south is usually good, right? That's the way you can sort of remember that. So 20 years before Israel, the northern territory, the northern kingdom, finally fills its sin. The, 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 the long-suffering of God toward the people of Israel in the north will run out in but 20 years when Isaiah is called to bring the message of Isaiah. They will fall under the hand of the Assyrian Empire. And much of the background of the book of Isaiah relates to the Assyrian Empire's threat not only against Israel, 
but also against Judah in the south. In fact, one of the key features of the book of Isaiah, one we won't deal with much at all tonight, is a warning to the kings of Judah that they are not to pay the vassal tax to the king of Assyria, but are to trust that God will provide. So there's this sort of global extortion that's happening. The Assyrian Empire was a vast empire. They were known to be a violent people. We've, we've talked about that on Sunday morning in our dealing with the book of Jonah. That provides some of the historical background for Jonah. This is a severely violent people. So what they do is they come in and they begin to attack cities on the periphery of a nation, of a country, and they offer the opportunity to the king or the leadership of that country that they will protect them, and most importantly, they will no longer attack them if they'll pay a certain amount of tribute to the Assyrian Empire. Basically, if you'll pay us this amount of money, not only will we not rob you, we'll keep other people from robbing you as well. This is the way the, the mob runs, right? Come into a community, we'll take care of you, but it's going to cost you 30% of whatever your profit is a month at a time. That's essentially, that's effectively what the Assyrians were doing. And the kings of Judah, the good kingdom in the south, were often tempted to pay that tribute out of fear for their well-being. Rather than trusting the provision of God for them as a nation, they would pay this tribute or this tax for protection. And again and again and again, Isaiah is warning them that you must put your trust in the Lord and lean not into your own understanding. So in Isaiah chapter 6, God calls Isaiah. It's one of the best-known passages in all of the Bible. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament and, and one that I have made a practice of preaching every time I got an opportunity to preach it. The passage says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go and say to, say to these people, Keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. And I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when failed. The holy seed is the stump. Now, virtually every verse in this chapter 
is, is appropriated in some capacity in the New Testament. In other words, it is appealed to in the New Testament to teach New Testament theology. Isaiah is called and commissioned by God. It, we often see this passage in a missionary context, God calling that we would go to the nations and we draw parallels between the experience of Isaiah and our own in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're compelled to say, here I am, Lord, send me. But note the message Isaiah has been called to preach is not a message of good news. In fact, whereas we are promised that Jesus has sheep not yet of this fold, sheep that will no doubt be gathered as we preach the message of the gospel under the Great Commission, Isaiah is guaranteed by God that his ministry will not be fruitfully effective in that way. Preach so that their ears are dulled and their eyes are dimmed, lest they see, lest they hear or perceive with their hearts. The patience of God toward Israel has run its course and the time for judgment has come. This is sort of a strange location for Isaiah's call and commission in the book. When you think about it, this is the kind of passage that seems most appropriate at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. T tell us about his call, verify, authenticate his ministry before telling us of the content, the substance of his ministry. That's the way most books are, are, are put together under the inspiration of the Spirit. Think of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, before uh, I formed you in the womb, I knew you and had called and commissioned and determined the course and nature of your ministry, God says, concerning Jeremiah. We're, we're informed at the outset of Jeremiah's ministry of God's special call on his life. The structure of Isaiah is such that we get five chapters of his ministry before we ever get to the call and commission. And the rhetorical effect of that, the teaching effect of that, is that we read those first five chapters, and it's all doom and gloom, and you're almost left with a sense that this just can't be true, right? It can't be as bad as, as what we're being led to believe. This just isn't right. Our suspicions are disrupted by this teaching on God's specific call in Isaiah's life. And the substance of his ministry is verified in a powerful, powerful way. This is one of the most detailed examples of a prophet's call to ministry in the Old Testament. Perhaps we need this level of insight to regard highly and to hear well an otherwise unpalatable message from the prophet Isaiah. It is more than what one would gladly bear apart from this deep insight that indeed God has called Isaiah from heaven. He comes into the prophetic ministry at a, at, at a, a sort of a, a critical time in Israel's history. Isaiah 6.1 says it was in the year that King Uzziah died. This marks the turning of a page in Israel's history. Israel is about to enter into a, a somewhat difficult season in her history. Uzziah had ruled in Israel for 40 years, which is a crazy amount of time if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. We get presidents for eight years at the most, and most times recently we hope it's no more than four. Can you, you imagine 40 years with the same leadership? 
And there are failures in Uzziah's ministry. There are failures in his leadership. But for the most part, he is counted as a good king. Things were good under Uzziah. So here we are, 40 years of relative peace and prosperity in the nation of Judah. But who knows what's coming next? There's no democratic process. There's no ability for the people to contribute or, or to contribute to making a decision about who the next leader is going to be. No one knows. A good king can have a son who's a scoundrel. That happens often in Judah's history. It happens often in Israel's history. A bad king can have a son who's an even worse king. Things can go off the rail pretty quickly. So Isaiah is being called and commissioned here in a season of great uncertainty in Israel's history. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. When we didn't know what the future would hold politically, militarily, financially, when we had no idea about the condition of our earthly throne, it is apparent to Isaiah and all who would see with eyes of faith the vision he experiences that God has not abdicated the throne of heaven, nor has he slept, slumbered, or deceased he is actively lording over the nation of Israel and, in fact, all of the created world. There's a great deal of the passage that you see repeated again in various ways in the Revelation. These angels sing back and forth to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. It really is a spectacular scene unfolding in our passage. There's even great detail given to the to the nature of the angels that sing this song. They're referred to here as the seraphim, which means the burning ones. They're angels that bear the appearance of a fiery blaze, and they fly about the throne room of heaven in the immediate presence of God's glory, and they sing this eternal song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The Bible says in verse 4 that the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. There, there are all these images from this scene. This is Isaiah in the temple and, and his, his gaze is drawn up to heaven. There is God on the throne. The train of his robe comes down and fills the temple and there's this picture of angels flying back and forth in the halls of heaven singing this incredible song with such incredible force that the doorpost the stoutest parts of the temple structure are shaken at the song those angels sing. Isaiah is immediately stricken with fear at the vision. He says, woe is me for I'm undone, a man of unclean lips who lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is, this is by the way, as a, a very brief aside, what worship really ought to look like. Worship is seldom this emotionally ecstatic experience. It is biblically, consistently, an experience wherein we are brought face-to-face -face with the image of who God is and who we are in light of His character. If, you know, when I hear someone bounce along and say, we met with the Lord, and it's this glib kind of light show and 
when, when it's this kind of, I hate to use this language because it's, it's been used so often, this sort of rock and roll concert experience, I'm always skeptical of that. When someone says with a sagging countenance and weight in their voice, I have been with God, there's legitimacy to that. Because a, a sagging countenance and a weighty voice and a heavy heart is often what results from this kind of encounter with God. Habakkuk pops off and says, God, what are you doing? And then God speaks. And he says, it was as though my bones became rotten in my body. And John, in Revelation 1, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I saw Jesus. And he said, I fell on my face, sore afraid at the vision I beheld. That's what, that's what worship looks like. That's what worship ought to really look like. Which is not to say we're unaffected by that. There, there are times and seasons when we worship and we are lifted high at the notion of who God is and his remarkable grace toward us. You should not be dispassionate in your worship. But understand that a part of being brought face to face with who God is, is reflecting soberly on who it is that we are and our desperate need for his grace and his mercy. In Jesus, we are quickly brought from the depths of our low to great heights at the knowledge that he lavishes us with grace and mercy by the blood of his only son. But that's the sort of emotional cycle one ought to be running when worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's demonstrated beautifully in the passage before us. We could really spend the rest of our time here, but there are a couple of other things I want you to see in our passage. Let, let's turn over to Isaiah 53. It's the last text cited in the notes that you have, but we'll come back to the second in just a moment. This is one of those passages that I referenced a moment ago that is so apparently Christological. In the Old Testament, you have passages that foreshadow the work of Jesus. You have passages that teach us of the work of Jesus typologically. What I mean by that is there's a figure in the Old Testament who is a type of Christ in some way. Think of Moses. Moses was the mediator between God and man, an imperfect mediator, but a mediator nonetheless. And the writer of Hebrews says that just as Moses was faithful in the house, Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses was a type, but we have a new and improved Moses in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the exclusive mediator between God and man by the blood of the covenant. Think of Joshua a type of Savior who led the people of Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land. What Moses could not do, Joshua was faithful to do. They, they crossed over the Jordan and into the land that flowed with milk and honey through the leadership of, of Joshua. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that what Joshua could only do in part, Jesus has done in perfection. He's saved us from our sin and is sanctifying us along the way. And at the last, 
He'll lead us to cross over the Jordan into the land that flows with milk and honey into a place of perfect peace by his protection and provision. There are all sorts of these examples in the Old Testament. But then there are those rare occasions when we stumble on a passage that speaks specifically, obviously, overtly to the work that Jesus would do on our behalf. Isaiah 53 is one such passage. Let's begin together in verse number 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. And he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He'll see it out of his anguish, and he'll be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he'll receive the mightiest spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." This, this passage is so obviously a passage that has reference to the work of Jesus who would bear our sin on the cross who would be bruised for our iniquity who would be numbered among the transgressors who, who would lose his life essentially and yet by some twist of fate find his place in the land of the living this is a passage that is about Jesus, and so obviously about Jesus. 700 years before Jesus. From time to time, I take up a little theology project. It's just good for me. You know, sometimes when you're preparing sermons and preparing sermons and preparing sermons, you can read the Bible so much, you can study so much for someone else it can be easy for the preacher to forget that that Bible better means something to him before it means anything to anyone else. And so I try to keep a little project going on the side. Recently, my project has been historical Jesus. The field of historical Jesus is about sorting through faith text. It's about sorting through biblical text and identifying, not according to theological criteria, but historical criteria, what we can know about the life of Jesus. In other words, if you took away all of my faith commitments, and you gave me only the written documents we have of Jesus' life, by secular historical criteria, what could I know about Jesus' life? You know the thing that has been astonishing? Is just how much of Jesus' life 
according to secular historical criteria, we can really find a measure of certainty about. It's kind of a weird vein of study, but it has generated for me such a sense of assurance at the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, here we have a passage that attests to the very details of Jesus' life, the historically verified details of Jesus' life, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Unless we have some sneaking suspicion that somehow, some way, the facts have been bent and that perhaps there was later editorial work given to the book of Isaiah. We, we have verifiable historical evidence of Isaiah 53 hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. I personally have looked upon the scroll of Isaiah. It's a long scroll. Isaiah is a long book in that ancient Hebrew script read the words of Isaiah chapter 53, words that were written at least 200 years before Jesus was ever born. And what we find years later in the person of the Messiah is one born according to the teaching of the Scripture who would fulfill every jot and tittle of God's promise under the old. And I don't know if that does anything at all for you. But it's moving to me. It's not that you know, I'm operating with this abiding skepticism. But when I find affirmation and even verification for what I have staked my life on, there's just a little celebration in that, right? A big part of Isaiah's prophecy is given, giving expression to the fulfillment of God's hope and plan for the people of Israel, indeed all his people and the suffering servant, the Messiah, who was to come. Now, in the couple of minutes, the few minutes that we have left, turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. There's a section in the book of Isaiah known as the book of Emmanuel. Chapters 7 through 12 is this subsection within Isaiah. It's called the book of Emmanuel because it's there that the Messiah to come is given the name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Matthew 1 has reference to the fulfillment of the scripture, you will call his name Emmanuel. It's, it's a reference to Isaiah 7 through 12 and the book of Emmanuel in, in this section of Isaiah. It's also that the passage, Isaiah 7, 14, is the passage that speaks of the virgin giving birth to a son as a sign. Matthew 1 uh, uses that passage there as well. But there's, there's so much movement and so much happening in these chapters. Now, there's some weeds here we could sort of get into that I'm going to try my best to stay away from here. But what I want you to note is that the prophecy of a son being born in this passage initially refers to the sons of Isaiah the prophet. In other words, there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. And Isaiah has these children. These children are born. They're supposed to be a sign. They have some of my favorite names in all of the Bible. 
One of, one of the boys' names is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It's not quite as popular as Joe and John, but it's kind of catchy. So you have these children being born to indicate the ways that God is going to move and work in the days ahead for the people of Israel. But you get to chapter 8 and verse number 18. And Isaiah says of the children, Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So what Isaiah is describing there is a situation wherein we're given freedom to interpret the birth of those children and their names, not only within the context of King Ahaz's leadership in, in Israel, but also in the context of the Messiah who was to come. Now all that has been dealt with in the book of Emmanuel in chapters 7 and 8 is the promise of sons born to Isaiah and what that indicates for the future of the nation. But by the time we come to chapter 9, the focus of these children as signs is no longer the immediate historical context of Isaiah, but the future birth and ministry of the Messiah we know as Jesus Christ. Now, there is this thing happening in the Old Testament, and, and I cannot overstate the critical importance of this chapter. Because this is like a theological bombshell dropping on the landscape of Israel. We can read from our perspective through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the very beginning of the Bible and how God foretells the sending of His Son to resolve our most pressing need, namely our birth under the corruption and condition of sin. As early as Genesis 3.15, God speaks of the crushing of the serpent's head and the bruising of the son's heel. And we read, and I think rightly so, that passage as a reference to one who will come and crush the serpent, the fiery snake, Satan, the devil himself, by the bruising of his heel, by, inflict, by, by Satan's inflicting him with agony, he would bring to pass our salvation. We can read Genesis 3.15 in that light. But we far more clarity reading from this perspective than Moses or the men of Israel in his day could have ever dreamed of having. You get through the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it, a few things become clear for us, namely in Deuteronomy 17, it becomes clear we need a certain kind of king. We need a king who puts our interest above his own, a king who isn't on the throne to establish wealth or to grow his prominence or prosperity, one who serves selflessly with the concerns and interests of his subjects, superior in his mind to his own personal needs. We need that kind of king. Continue reading in, in, in the Old Testament, we find in the book of Judges that we desperately need a king. In those days, there's no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a disastrous episode in Israel's history. We come to First and Second Samuel, and, and we learn that the kind of king that we're searching for is a king in the line of Judah. That Judah seems to be positioned by God as the tribe that would give rise to the right kind of king. And in fact, David is called and anointed as king of Israel. And 
The progress of Revelation is moving forward in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God says, I'm going to make sure that there is a king in the line of Judah on the throne of Israel forever. Conditioning that promise on the faithfulness of the sons of David, but promising no less that that's the kind of king that we need, a king according to the line of Judah. And with each king that rises and falls, there's a measure of hopeful expectation that this king will be the king we're looking for. Will it be David, a man after God's own heart? Well, they thought maybe, but there's that Bathsheba problem. And then Solomon is born. Solomon expands the boundaries of Israel more broadly than, than they had ever been expanded before. They build this vast $2 billion in today's currency temple in the, in the center of the city of Jerusalem, and Solomon might be it. But there's the problem of those 700 wives and 300 concubines. That can be problematic. Solomon doesn't measure up. And then the kingdom splits, and the hope now is in the southern kingdom, in Judah, and there are glimpses of hope. There are glimmers of righteousness in those southern kings, but king after king after king fails, and he fails, and he fails. And then what are we left with? Now, we're not to this place yet, but with the fall of the southern kingdom, it's almost as though all hope is lost. Now, if, if, you, if, you, can, if you can forget for a moment your resurrection lens, Think about where people are in Isaiah's day without the level of understanding that you have of the message of the gospel. All they truly know is that they need a king. And they might understand that they need a priest king. There are indicators that we need a king who is in tune with God. But what is revealed in Isaiah 9 is that not only is God going to send them the king they've always needed, He's going to send a God king. Now, when I say this is a theological bombshell, I mean that in the truest sense of the word. You're not just going to get a king who is a son of David. You're going to get a king who is the son of God. And for the first time in Israel's history, that is made abundantly clear in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, you might, as a Christian, read this passage in your annual Bible reading program and not have your hair blown back, but no reasonable Jew in the 8th century B.C. could have heard what Isaiah said here without being absolutely blown away at what is revealed in this passage. Look at chapter 9, and uh, let's see, let's start in verse 2 for the sake of time. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoiced when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. 
He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And for the first time in history, with absolute clarity, God says, my only son is going to come and rule and reign, not only over the nation of Israel, but over all creation. We, we are gathered here this evening in part as the fulfillment of what God promised 2,700 years ago and brought to pass in the birth, death, and resurrection of His Son now nearly 2,000 years ago. This is, the book of Isaiah, is, is you, can, you can swim around in the depths of Isaiah for years and years and years. and I've made a, I, One of the first Bible book-specific courses I took as an undergraduate student was in the book of Isaiah, and I still don't feel as though I have a good grasp on all of the moving parts of the book of Isaiah. One of the best ways to approach it is to consider the ways that it informs the theology of the New Testament, reading Isaiah from that New Testament perspective as forcefully as any other book in the old testament it, it is the message of the gospel from the other side of the cross a message that is no less precious to us even from our perspective let's go to god in prayer father thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of giving consideration to these passages it is a marvelous thing, an astonishing thing, something that shouldn't so much surprise us but encourage us that we would find such in encouragement and comfort in, in words that excited and amazed the faithful of God 2,700 years ago. Not only have you bound us together as your people across various tribes and nations and backgrounds, God, you've bound us together generationally with a host of saints who've come and gone before us here and elsewhere, God. And for these, we give you all the thanks and praise. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to never allow ourselves to let the gospel suffer fatigue in our heart and mind, surprise us each day at your amazing grace, astonish us at the lengths to which you have proven yourself willing to go to save a people all your own. Thank you for the grace and mercy. Thank you for the blood applied to each individual person who entrust their selves, their lives, their souls, and their faith to Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.